reading from the book of Luke, chap um, chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Well, good morning from my side as well. If you can keep your Bibles open, that will be very helpful because we're going to step through that passage. But before we do that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the privilege to meet this morning and to listen to your word. We also thank you that you have challenging passages in your Bible, like the one today. And we just ask you this morning, Father, show us Christ. Show us Christ and teach us how to follow him and do this by the Holy Spirit and his power. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine you sit at work at your usual work desk and you are very busy. Or if you don't work, imagine you're at a busy family gathering at your home and suddenly a stranger comes by, someone you don't know. And he looks you straight into the eyes and he stands right in front of you. And with that look, he says two words to you. He says, follow me, follow me. What would you do? Would you go after that stranger? It's a weird thing to imagine, but in fact, it's exactly what happened when Jesus called his first disciples. They left their jobs, their homes, and some of them even their families, and they followed him. You see, Jesus is saying the same thing to us through his word this morning. Through the passage, he is saying to us, follow me. But he's saying more than that. As we will see later in today's passage, Jesus is actually challenging us. He isn't just coming to us and saying to us, follow me. No, he's saying, follow me but also count the costs. If you really want to follow me, be prepared for a rough journey, he says. 
a way that involves hardship, a way of shame and rejection. So today we'll be looking at this way, actually at three ways. First, the way of the disciples. Second, the way of the Messiah. And third, our way as followers of Christ today. So our passage starts with the question about Jesus' identity. And this question already came up a couple of times in Luke's gospel before. You remember when Jesus calmed the storm and when the disciples marveled at his power and authority and they asked themselves, who is this Jesus that even the wind and the sea obey him? And week after week we have now seen how Jesus performs miracles, heals people, drives out demons, and preaches the good news of the kingdom of God. But this didn't go unnoticed. The word about Jesus quickly spread into the neighboring regions and people started to wonder, who is this Jesus? And some rumors developed. And last week we have heard that even John, uh, even Herod, the ruler of Galilee, who killed John the Baptist, started to wonder, who is this Jesus? Can you see how Luke is building up tension with this reoccurring question? And well, today in our passage, we reach a climax, and this question is finally answered. So after feeding the 5,000, Jesus goes away from the crowds together with his disciples to have some privacy. He prays alone, and then Jesus himself asks his disciples this question. Have a look at verse 18. He asked them, who do the crowds say I am? You know, Jesus knows that his disciples have heard about all the latest rumors because they just returned from their first mission trip and they also mingled with the 5,000. So they reply in verse 19, some of you, some say you are John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And again, others say that a prophet of old has risen. So what does that tell us? It tells us that there was a lot of speculation going on, a lot of rumors about who Jesus is. But they all have one thing in common. The common opinion about Jesus was that he was just a mere man, a prophet like so many before him. In fact, you see, this isn't so different from today. Recently, I saw a video on YouTube where random people were asked on the streets of New York the same question, who is Jesus? And some said a historical figure, among others. Others said just a man. And one woman said he was the son of God, but so was Gandhi and Mohammed, because aren't we all children of God? And finally, there was a man who said, if David Copperfield, you know, that magician from the television, if he had lived in the first century, he would be Jesus. This man saw Jesus as a con artist, as a hoax. So you see, even today, there are so many false opinions and rumors about who Jesus is. But have a look at our passage. Jesus isn't interested in these rumors. Notice in verse 20, in his response, he doesn't say anything about these prophets mentioned before. He isn't interested in a discussion about them. No, he isn't interested what his disciples heard from other people. Instead, he's much more interested what they themselves, his disciples who walked with him, what they think about Jesus. 
who he is, who they think they are following. Jesus wants them to make a profession of faith. And so he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter says, God's Messiah, or literally, the Christ of God. Well, this is a profound statement because it's the first time that Jesus is called Messiah in Luke's gospel. Not only Peter answers, probably because he's the spokesperson for all disciples, but we also have to understand that the disciples' idea of Messiah is quite different from the idea of Messiah we have today. The Messiah for them was someone who would be a mighty deliverer. They were waiting for a military and political leader, someone who would deliver Israel from the Roman occupation. That's the Messiah the disciples thought they were following, a leader sent by God who would bring a change by choosing a way of force. Now we all know that this isn't the way that Jesus eventually chose as Messiah. So Peter and the disciples, they didn't get it quite right. Peter gave the right answer, yes. But they didn't understand the meaning of this answer. Anyway, it's still a profound statement. Why? Because by confessing that Jesus is the Messiah, Peter and the disciples set themselves against the established opinion Remember, this confession comes at a time when everyone else thinks of Jesus as just a mere man. The crowds didn't follow Jesus as Messiah, as a deliverer. They couldn't even decide which prophet he was. They followed him as a good teacher. But what happened when this teaching became too convicting? What did the crowds do? We can read about it in John chapter 6. They turned away and they left. They no longer followed Jesus at all because they didn't like his message. You say that they didn't like to hear about the cost that are involved in following Jesus. And again, isn't that very much the same today in our world? Especially in Australia, in the Western world. We're always looking for that easy way, for that laid back lifestyle, the way of happiness, we don't want someone to come around and tell us about hardship. That's why the prosperity gospel is so popular. Why people like Joyce Meyer and Joel Austin draw large crowds. It's because they are selling a way of happiness to the people. But you see, they exchanged the way of truth for a lie. And people fall for that lie. Why? Because we are all sinners by nature. We love that easy way. We love to sin, and deep inside we are rebels against God. And then there's Satan, and he knows his work. He is skilled. He was a tempter from the beginning, and he knows all your weak spots. He knows how to draw you away from Christ and how to offer you an easier way. In fact, even Peter, who said to Jesus, you are the Christ of God, you remember shortly after that he denied Jesus three times. But what does that tell us? It tells us something about who Jesus is, 
Because Jesus is the one who had mercy on Peter, who showed grace and forgiveness. In fact, God kept working in Peter's heart for the whole time he followed Jesus. This unknown fisherman from Galilee, to whom Jesus said, follow me and I will make you a fisher of man. He became the great apostle of the early church. The apostle who preached on the day of Pentecost and over 3,000 were converted. You see, Peter and the others were mightily used by God. But their way of following Jesus wasn't easy. In fact, as far as we know, most of them died the death of a martyr. Peter, for example, was crucified upside down under the Emperor Nero for following Christ. So looking back, we can see that this confession was only the beginning of a long journey for them. That's the way of the disciples. And it's a way that wasn't easy for them. But what about Jesus himself? What's his response to them? And if he isn't that political and military leader, what is the way that he chose as the Messiah? This brings us to our second part for today, the way of the Messiah. First of all, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't reject the title Messiah or Christ of God. Do you see that in verse 22? He uses the title Son of Man in his response, yes, but notice how he doesn't reject what Peter said before. And that's because he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one who will one day come in his glory, and the one who will one day rule the new Jerusalem, the one of whom God the Father said, this is my son, listen to him. So you see, Peter and the disciples, they were not completely wrong, but their thinking needed some adjustment. They didn't understand what needed to happen first. They didn't understand that Jesus must first suffer, be rejected, die on the cross, and then be raised to glory. They couldn't see that way that was in front of Jesus. Have a look at verse 21. Jesus commands them to tell no one that he is the Messiah. Because there's something bigger going on here. Jesus is following a divine time schedule. There's a cosmic order of events that Jesus is following. He chooses a way that he submitted to before time even began. When he willingly submitted to follow the Father's will. When the Father decreed to send his only begotten Son to die for our sins. Therefore, in verse 22, the NIV translates... The Son of Man must suffer many things, and he must be killed. But the original language is even stronger than that. There's only one word that links these chains of events together. And that word is best translated into, it is necessary. So Jesus is saying it is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and to be raised. This is the necessary way, in that very order. You see, this is the way of the Messiah. And what a way it is. The Messiah isn't overthrowing the Romans by military actions. No, the Messiah is destined to suffer and to be rejected. And by whom? By the elders, the chief priests, 
and the scribes. That's basically everyone who had something to say. You know, these are the political, religious, and intellectual leaders of the time. The entire wisdom of the world and the established leaders, the Jews, his own people, they're all against Jesus. His way, it's a way of shame, a way of pain, of humiliation, and it leads Jesus, the Messiah, to the cross, to his death. But you know, Jesus knew about it all the time. He knew that he would suffer, be rejected, and that he had to die for us, for you and me, for our sins, so that we can have forgiveness and eternal life. Can you imagine that? He knew it. He saw Calvary, the cross, the blood, the pain, the shame before him every day of his ministry. This, the cross, was a constant reality on his way in front of him. And what's striking contrast that is to the powerful Jesus described before in Luke's gospel, the Jesus who performed miracles, heals people, speaks with the authority of God, and rebukes the wind and the sea. This Jesus now tells his disciples for the first time that it is necessary for him to die. That's something his disciples couldn't understand. That's something that wouldn't fit their worldview. But Jesus, he willingly followed this way that he had to sub submit it to before. But what's at the end of the way? Have a look at verse 22 again. It's the resurrection. You see, Jesus couldn't be held down by death. Now, the resurrection is part of his way as much as the crucifixion is. Jesus' way leads him to glory and to be seated at the right hand of God. But this way, it's also a way that leads him through the cross, not left or right from him. No, it goes right through the cross. And Jesus was willing to bear this cross and walk this way for us. You see, this was an act of sheer love, grace, and mercy, something that none of us could have done. And it's also something that none of us deserves either. It's by his grace alone that we are saved. But brothers and sisters, this doesn't mean that it's cheap grace. It took God to send his only begotten son to die for our sins. That's costly grace. And it brings us to the last part for us today. How should we respond to that? What's our way as Christians today? Is it an easy way? Or do we have to make sacrifices? Are there costs involved? Someone who wrote about the costs of following Jesus was the Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. As a follower of Christ, he was killed by the Nazis just two weeks before his camp was liberated by the US troops. But let me read to you how Bonhoeffer describes what cheap grace is. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. 
Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Do you hear what Bonhoeffer is saying? Bonhoeffer says cheap grace is if someone comes to you and says, yes, you have sinned, but now everything is okay. You are forgiven. So now you can stay as you are and enjoy that forgiveness. Yes, that's cheap grace. But brothers and sisters, that's not the gospel. Stay as you are. That's not the way of a Christian. That's not what Jesus commands us to do. Jesus never said we can stay as we are. And I want you to see this in your own Bibles. Have a look at verse 23. Jesus now turns to the crowds and tells everyone what it means to follow him. Notice this isn't a private conversation between him and his disciples anymore. No, Jesus wants everyone to know what it means to be his disciples and that there are costs involved in following him. You see, that's something we need to hear as those who follow Jesus, but it's also something for someone who doesn't follow Jesus yet. So have a look at verse 23. Jesus says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. That's the way he commands us to walk. So have you counted the costs? Have you sat down and counted what it involves to follow Jesus? Because if you, don't, if you want to get anything out of this passage, any application, verse 23 is your application. But what does it mean to deny yourself? You see, self is the idol that every one of us has. I have it and you have it. And every day it's asking us to be worshipped. It's like one of these online search engines. You keep on feeding it again and again every day. And this crying for attention, this me, me, me focus, it's driving you away from Jesus, away from following him. But you see, self-denial, on the other hand, means to truly ask yourself this question, how low is myself and how high is God in my heart? How much do you love yourself and how much do you love God, his word, his people? How much time do you spend thinking about yourself and about the best outcome for your family in the future? What's keeping you up at night? Are you willing to give up your comfort that future, your kingdom that you want to build? Are you willing to give it up so that God's kingdom may come? You see, self-denial means that our self needs to decrease so that Christ can increase in our hearts. It means to acknowledge that I'm a fool, a rebel, and that God is the author of amazing grace. It's his way, his will that we need to follow, not ours. Self-denial means that our feelings and desires take second place to God's will. It means to make a commitment, a covenant, to follow the Bible. That's why we pray, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, it's not about us anymore, our kingdom, our will. It's all about following Jesus. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Galatians 5.24. He says, 
Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Have you? And what about that second command in verse 23? Jesus commands us to take up our cross daily. In the ancient world, the cross was a symbol of shame. And everyone knew what it means when someone had to carry that cross. When the Roman soldiers came to take someone away and he or she had to carry that cross, this was a one-way street, a death sentence. And it was also a way of shame. And Jesus is saying to us, if you want to be my disciple, you, will be need, you, you need to be prepared to walk a way of shame and rejection as I did. It means to follow into his footsteps. Do you see the similarities between our way and his way? Between the way of the Messiah and our way as his disciples? Jesus says, if you follow me, be prepared to suffer hardship. Be prepared to be rejected by the world around you. And yes, Jesus says, we will need to die. We will need to crucify and die to ourselves daily. You see, the cross is inseparable from the way of a Christian. And the cross comes before the crown, before the glory. So does that mean that we all need to become martyrs like Peter and Bonhoeffer? No, not if we can help it. But it means that the way of a Christian is also a way that leads him through the cross. It means to examine ourselves daily and to ask, does my heart sing with that famous hymn, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee? Or does my heart sing that famous song by Frank Sinatra, I did it my way? If we sing, I did it my way, Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. You see, as a Christian, you can't do it your way. You can't save your life. It doesn't matter how much money you have, what career you have, titles or position. In the end, we will all die and stand before God, our maker. And all this stuff, in eternity, it will be worth nothing. So let me ask you this. If I give you one million dollar right now, would you sell me your eyes? Okay, what about two millions? No? Okay, I give you ten million dollars for your weaker eye. Still not, right? Of course not. You wouldn't sell me your eyes, those windows to the world. But you see, if your eyes are so valuable, how much more valuable is your soul, your whole being, your life? We all want to keep it. We don't want to give it up. But ask yourself, what are you giving your life to at the moment? What is it that consumes your energy, your time, your money? Is it for the glory of God or is it for yourself? In verse 25, Jesus says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? You see, the whole world wouldn't be enough as a price for your life. 
So come to Christ and follow his way. Because we can only gain eternal life by following the one who created life in the first place. It's only by his grace. And in eternity, there will be only one question we all have to answer. Are you a follower of Christ? And what will your answer be? Are you like Levi, the tax collector from chapter 5, to whom Jesus said, follow me? And he left everything. He jumped up and he followed him. Or are you more like the people at the end of chapter 9, to whom Jesus said, follow me? But they had all sorts of excuses. They all had other things that were more important for them. I mean, how often do you think you can put things off for later? And with some of the stuff, you might be right. But you can't say to God, he doesn't fit my time schedule. You can't say to Jesus, ah, today I have more important things to do. I can't follow you today, but maybe Sunday is a good day. Because if, he, if, if we are not following Christ, if he doesn't fit our time schedule, Jesus says, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Now, we can't follow Jesus and the world. We can't look at what's left and right or even behind us to our old lives. If we don't focus on Jesus, we will miss the way. Because, you see, he is the way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. But to focus our eyes on Jesus is getting harder, isn't it? I mean, it's no secret that Australia is becoming more and more secular and even hostile to Christians. I know people who lost their jobs because they are followers of Christ and they were not willing to work on a Sunday. And we have all seen and heard the hostility, uh, hostility against Christians in the media. COVID might have slowed that down a bit, but don't be fooled. It's on the rise and it will continue. Our world is currently cutting down the very foundations it was built on. Christian foundations. They are being dismantled, whether that is marriage, gender, abortion, euthanasia, or other issues. At the moment, you're still allowed to be a Christian, as long as you practice it in private. But the moment you go public, it's a completely different ballgame. You have to endure public shame. And your family will get attacked on social media. That's a reality right now. Our world is not following Jesus. In fact, our world is trained to be ashamed of Jesus and the Bible. But for such a world, Jesus has a strong warning in verse 26. He says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So in this world, the question is, where do you stand? And where do you stand in a couple of years from now? If Jesus returns tomorrow or in two years from now, how will he find you? As a humble, steadfast follower who is professing Christ, living it out even in public? Or as someone who is ashamed of Christ and the Bible because it becomes so counter-cultural? Uh, counter with all this, let's keep in mind 
that Jesus was not ashamed to die for us on the cross, naked, spit on, mocked. And the reality is that on the last day we will all be raised, but those who don't follow Jesus, who are ashamed of him, they will be raised to shame and punishment. And this will last forever. They will have to pay the true cost, the eternal cost of not following Jesus. Now this might sound confronting to you, but have you ever asked yourself why? It's because we know that we all fail, that we sin and we do it again and again every day. It's confronting because we know we are guilty and we deserve punishment. But when we fail, it's important to remember that we are saved not by what we do, but by grace and through faith in the one who didn't fail us and the one who will never fail us if we believe in him. You know, the angel said, his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. That means you don't have to carry that cross on your own because God is with you. And through his Holy Spirit, he will lift you up when you fall. And that's how you can continue to follow Jesus in this world that becomes more and more secular. It's not by your own strength, but with the strength that comes from God. And so we move, we follow Jesus. But that also means as Christians, we can't stay as we are. You see, there is God's part in calling us, changing us, lifting us up on the way. But there's also our responsibility to deny ourselves and to take up this cross. This is our way. That's what it means to follow Jesus. To close, then, let me ask you, where does that lead us? It leads us to the same place that some of the people in verse 27 were able to see. It leads us into the kingdom of God. It leads us into the arms of our heavenly Father. Because for those who can answer that question on the last day and say, yes, by God's grace, I am a follower of Christ. For those, there's victory at the end of the way. You see, there's not just glory and honor for the ones who persevere, but there will be Christ. And we will be in his glorious presence forever for all eternity. And on that day when he will come in his glory and with his holy angels, every tear will be wiped away. All the pain, the rejection, the shame, it will be gone. And we will be seeing God face to face. That's what's awaiting us at the end of the way as Christians. So let's pray that this day may come soon and that by God's grace and with the power of his Holy Spirit, that we all will persevere till the end as followers of Christ for his glory. Amen.